Hello, and welcome to Fanfare, our fortnightly culture review podcast with Emma Knight and Monica Ainley DLV. For our third episode, we are interviewing a legend. But first, I wanted to ask Monica something. Mokes, are you there? Oui, oui, je suis là. <laughs> Where are you exactly? I'm in Gay Paris, darling, of course. Oh, of course, you do live in Paris. I forgot about that. Hey, are you the Monica in Paris who wrote a letter to Emily in Paris recently? Bien sûr. In fact, Emily does slightly tremble in her Scorpio's booties when I come around because she... Nemesis is a strong word, but it's probably the appropriate one. We've had a bit of a standoff for the past, I'd say, upwards of a year. It all started when my editor at British Vogue asked me to review the first season of Emily in Paris, and I said, I can as long as I don't have to be nice and I can write it in letter form to Emily. And I'm afraid ahead of the second season, French folk this time have asked me to continue my correspondence with Emily, and I could not hold back. It's a little like the letters between Hemingway and F. Scott. Scathing. It's not entirely dissimilar. <laughs> not that I would put myself on that kind of level, but I wouldn't put Emily there either. <laughs> I mean, well, here's what's amazing, though, is people do apparently read these letters. And the re reason that they read them is not for probably any other reason than people do watch Emily. And I think that leads really quite directly into our topic of conversation today, which is largely what is it about stories of Americans or North Americans in Paris that has long fascinated people quite so much. And that is something that Adam Gopnik addressed for, well, addressed indirectly through his own personal stories for years in The New Yorker with his um, Paris pieces. And of course, addresses in his book of essays, Paris to the Moon, which is a compilation of a lot of what he wrote while he was in Paris reporting for The New Yorker. I love his tone. I'm not going to pretend to you that in pieces that I've written about Parisian life and culture, I haven't been inspired by that kind of Gopnik writing about Paris. Uh, I certainly have. David Sedaris as well. But Gopnik really is kind of the, in the past 30 years, perhaps the person that has written most profoundly on the topic. Would you say that? Mm, mm -hmm. Okay. So for those of you who do not know about today's interviewee, he is the author and essayist Adam Gopnik a New Yorker staff writer since 1986 and the winner of countless awards and honors, including the Medal of Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters by the French Republic. Ooh la la. I know, that's really cool. <laughs> He's also one of the biggest writing influences on both of us. As Monica was saying, his uh, essay style is truly sensational. He manages to blend the kind of microscope and telescope really well. And we have the great honor of speaking with Adam Gopnik on the podcast very shortly. But first, what is it about Paris that gets us going? Monica, I want to ask you because you currently reside in Paris. I think that there's the obvious level and then there's the more perhaps a little bit deeper level. So, I mean, Paris is, in my humble opinion, one of the most beautiful places in the world. It has a great deal of culture to offer. It's very different to North America and the way that we do things. And yet it's not so different that it's not approachable for us. We can dream of somewhat integrating into their culture. You know, I speak as someone who is 
lived here for several years and is married to a Frenchman. So I can say that it is possible, but that you will never fully feel like a French person. And nor do I want to, by the way. There are lots of days where I'm happy to be a Canadian. It's actually a weird conflict in my mind because I choose to live here. I love living here, but I also sometimes find the French very stubborn and annoying, but then I also love them. I think that it is a really interesting city to observe as a foreigner. And I think that a large part of that, so going a little deeper, is that the French are incredibly proud of their culture, of their language, of their history. But it's the French stubbornness that I do sometimes find annoying that is also, I think, so attractive because there is no part of France that is interested in any kind of like a manifest destiny-esque, we all want to be Americans kind of thing, even though occasionally they will like dip in, you know, they love friends. They love friends, but not, they haven't really gotten into Seinfeld. Uh, but oh my God. I, do, I do think that it's part of the French pride. For me, the thing about Paris that I still can't shake is the feeling I get when I'm there, which is unlike no other city gives me this feeling. And it's a feeling, this is going to sound a bit of deep insignificance, like my own insignificance, the age of the city, the beauty of the city how magical it is. It's like being under the stars in Algonquin Park in the summer. Like it's, you feel like you're just a tiny, tiny part of this much, much bigger picture. And I love that feeling. And I think that- Oh, I love that. I think part of what annoys us so much about Emily in Paris is the idea of this girl arriving in her like really loud outfit and the entire city kind of getting down on one knee and being like, welcome. Or like, even you annoy me and I'm going to be evil to you like her boss. Like, no, you know, so many foreigners churn through Paris, even during COVID, like all the time that the idea that the entire city would kind of parade around Emily like that. And it's just absurd. Okay. So we should get to our guest because he is endlessly more interesting than we are. You'll be surprised to hear. And he's much more interesting than Emily. So without further ado, here is our guest, Adam Gopnik. J'avoue, j'en ai bavé pas vous, mon amour. Avant d'avoir eu vent de vous. Hi, Adam. Welcome to Fanfare. Thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. Nice to meet you both. Where are we speaking from? Well, this is what's extraordinary. So you are in New York, I believe. Emma's I am in Toronto. Matt, our producer, is in London, and I am in Paris. Oh my goodness, that's wow. That's amazing. Okay, great. Very international. That leads us into um, our kind of problématique that we've developed for this episode, which is kind of at the core of what we're going to be talking about. Why are stories of Americans or North Americans, in our case, in Paris, always so captivating? And your essay, Paris to the Moon, contains what I reckon is we reckon is the best explanation we've ever found for why Americans are so obsessed with Paris. So we were wondering if to start off, you would do us the honor of reading the first three paragraphs of that essay. Of course. Paris to the moon. Not long after we moved to Paris in the fall of 1995, my wife Martha and I saw in the window of a shop on the Rue Saint-Sulpice a 19th century engraving done in the manner, though I'm now inclined to think not from the hand, of Daumier. It shows a train on its way from the right bank of Paris to the moon. The train has a steam locomotive and six cars, and it is chugging up a pretty steep track. The track is supported on two high, slender spires. 
that seemed to be anchored somewhere in the fifth arrondissement. You can see the Pantheon in silhouette nearby. And then the track just goes right up and touches the full moon up in the clouds. I suppose those two pillars are stronger than they look. The train is departing at twilight. Presumably it's an overnight trip. And among the crowd on the ground below, only a couple of top-hatted bourgeois watch the Lunar Express go on its way with any interest, much less with wonder. Everybody else in the crowd of 13 or so people on the platform, mostly moms and dads and kids, are running around and making conversation and comforting children and buying tickets for the next trip and doing all the things people still do on station platforms in Paris. The device on the ticket window, like the title of the cartoon, reads, A Railroad from Paris to the Moon. The cartoon is in part a satire on the stock market of the time and on railway share manipulations. Industry, the caption begins, knows no more obstacles. But the image cast its spell on us, at least, because it seemed to represent two notions, or romances, that had made us want to leave New York and come to Paris in the first place. One was the old 19th century vision of Paris as the naturally modern place, the place where the future was going to happen as surely as it would happen in New York. If a train were going to run to the moon, that train would originate from the Gale du Nord, with Parisian kids getting worn out while they waited. But the image represented another, more intense association, and that is the idea that there is, for some Americans anyway, a direct path between the sublunary city and a celestial state. Americans, Henry James once wrote, are too apt to think that Paris is the celestial city, and even if we don't quite think that, some of us do think of it as the place where tickets are sold for the train to get you there. Ben Franklin thought this, and so did Gertrude Stein, and so did Henry Miller. It's a roomy idea. If this notion is pretty obviously unreal, and even hair-raisingly naive, it has at least the excuse of not being original. When they die, Oscar Wilde wrote, all good Americans go to Paris. Some of us have always tried to get there early and beat the crowds. I have not read those words in 22 years. I walk along Rue Saint-Sulpice every morning to drop my daughter off at Crèche. And I think the shop you're talking about might still be there. Yes, it is there. We we were back in September and it definitely is there. It's called, uh, has a f- Spanish name. Uh. Yeah, no, I know the shop. And I th- so I think about your essay almost every morning. And it makes me feel very happy to be here. Oh, that's so nice. Though You know, the funny thing, Monica, is that somebody pointed out to me, having read the book, that I never actually say that we bought the print, but indeed we did. It's reproduced in the front of the uh, of the book, but I thought it was obvious that we had bought it, and it hangs in the uh, in the front hall of our uh, of our apartment in New York now. So I love how in that passage you talk, Adam, about what, in a wide sense, drew you to Paris as the celestial city, you know, the place where the future would unfold. Uh, I also love in at the stranger's gate, how you describe how your wife, Martha, was tugged by invisible wires toward the origins of these objects of beauty that she had collected. I'm curious to know personally why for you and Martha, Paris was the place, you know, of all the beautiful cities, why was this the beautiful city? And how did some of those conversations go pre your 1995 move? In a weird way, there was a kind of unfolding thing. Someday, if anybody cares, I'm going to turn those three books, At the Stranger's Gate, Paris the Moon, Through the Children's Gate, into a real trilogy, because Paris the Moon is, in a sense, the middle volume of a three-volume story of the evolution of a family. So we began in in Montreal, in Canada. Uh, All of Martha's family are still in Western Canada, in Edmonton. And uh, having gone there from Winnipeg, you could make a joke about 
the immigration from Winnipeg to Edmonton, but I won't, as opposed to Montreal to Paris, but I won't. <laughs> um, the other celestial city. Exactly. We love Edmonton. Anyway, so we had Dream of New York. And as I tried to explain, and I'm glad you like that metaphor, it was very, very dear to me. We love Montreal. I love it now more perhaps than I ever have, but we wanted out. We wanted the big world. We wanted lay beyond. We wanted the Oz. We didn't want Munchkin City. And Munchkin Montreal, we wanted to leave for Oz. So New York represented that for us. And then as time went on, I became uh, the art critic of The New Yorker. Martha became a a film editor. Uh, We developed an an intense uh, social life. It began, New York began to to tire us out a lot. And you're the competitive and the strangulating energies of New York, which are very real, came to seem oppressive. I wrote a, um, a story once called um, uh, The Children of the Party, which was sort of about the last party of the 1980s that tried to capture some of those feelings of of exhaustion. I've never put it in a book. I should have, but you can find it on, in The New Yorker. And then our son, Luke, was born in 1994. But we had made a what we called the Wellfleet Resolution. We go up to Wellfleet in, on Cape Cod in the summers. And we had been, this is before Lucas Born, we'd been listening to Charles Trenet records and uh, uh, Michel Legrand records and so on. There were CDs in those days. We had gone to Paris before we went to New York when Martha and I were in um, CGEP in Montreal. I, that's something that only Quebecers will know. It's kind of two years of compulsory junior college between high school and, and university. And we were still in CGEP, uh, 19 and 20, I guess, 19 and 18. And I had lived in Paris earlier for a couple of years with my parents who were academics at McGill. And I'd gotten to know it a little bit. I got to know it the way a 14, 15-year-old boy knows it. I went to countless movies and repertory cinemas and so on. It wasn't like I was dining at Tour d'Argent most of the time. But anyway, it was the only value added I had to bring to my courtship was that I knew Paris somewhat and I... (laughs) <laughs> talked to her with a with an energy that I don't think I could duplicate today. I know I couldn't into coming to Paris with me. So we had gone to Paris in the spring of 1977 when we were still teenagers, and we shared a cold. And she became infatuated with the city too. Then all these years, but well, weren't so many years later. It was 11 or 12 years later, which seemed at the time like lifetime later. Now that I'm middle aged, it seems like no time at all. But in any case, we said, let's move. We should move to Paris someday. We should escape New York and go to Paris. And then when our son Luke was born, we sort of knew, everybody told us, that you had sort of four years of possibility before school slammed down on you and and uh, you had to do it. And we said, we're going to do it now. We're going to throw our caps over the wall and climb over the, the wall. Now, it was a relatively low wall in as much as once I announced it to the editor of The New Yorker that this was my decision, I was going to stop being an art critic and go to Paris. She, bless her, Tina Brown, the great Tina Brown, said, oh, I suppose that's a good idea. Why, yes, all right. So you'll write to us from Paris then. She was very positive and, and encouraging about it. Full of good ideas, that Tina Brown. Yeah, and she knew it. Although, and this is significant, and and I'll end this endless disquisition on this thought because it's very relevant to everything we're talking about. In the 1990s, 1994, when I had that conversation with Tina, she was glad to support me because she enjoyed my writing and thought it was an, you know, an interestingly eccentric turn to take. But she said sweetly, and but insistently, and then said it again pretty much every year for the rest of the decade, why didn't you go to London? Everything is happening in London. And that was true. 
that everything was happening in London in the 1990s. If you were, if you remember, yeah. it was the time of New Labour, Cool Britannia, and it wasn't a figment. It wasn't a mirage. It was London was a very exciting place to be then. Spice Girls. Spice Girls. The financial industry. All those things were, <laughs> yeah. were coming together. And so choosing Paris was very much choosing the back of the building. But that was exactly what drew us to it. it was exactly that it was the back of the building. As I said, someplace else in the in the opening essay of Paris, the Moon, you had this kind of great belt of American culture that had engirdled the world, to use the verb of Shakespeare's, and Paris was pretty much, in France, was the only place that escaped that encirclement, that engirdlement, or to use another metaphor, very much like the uh, the opening of all the wonderful Asterix books of Goscinny and Uderzo. I saw a good show about Asterix in Paris um, last time I was there at the Mayot Museum. All Gaul is conquered by the Romans except for one little village, and Paris was very much that one little village. And we were the Romans. I love that. I love that you not only had to take the plunge the first time, but kind of renew your vows every year in not being pulled by London. Now, Adam, what were some of the practical obstacles involved in your move? Because we all know that no one does practical obstacles quite like the French. <laughs> the obvious one is finding a place to live. And as I think I say, if I remember correctly, you know, in New York, everything is built around the most basic and brutal market values. Everything has a clear price. And if you've got the money in your pocket to pay that price, you can get the place you want. In Paris, at least in our experience, this is now 25 years ago, of course, it was a much more complicated conjugation of availability, the circle of people you knew, the um, goodwill that you had on the part of the person who owned the apartment or the landlord who owned it. It was a much more intensely idiosyncratic conjugation of possibilities. And we went through that before we found a place. And then, of course, there's the endless difficulties in outfitting a place and providing place. I, I, if I remember correctly, there's a whole long section in the book about Béchevé, the, uh, the home, the kind of home depot of Paris and all of our adventures in trying to, uh, in trying to outfit our place. And then, of course, the big one, which you've experienced too, and that was we had a brand new baby. We had a year old baby and we had to get him in a creche, in a playgroup, find a nanny for him while I was, well, we both were working. Martha was writing a screenplay. I was writing for The New Yorker every day. So those, all those things collided together to make for a tumultuous uh, first year. And as I say in the in the book, you know, it, it was so much, even more than the big things, though the big things were often exhausting, like finding an apartment. It was the small things too, like getting our first Christmas tree. And we went out, Monica, you can tell me if this is still the case, to find a sapin on the Ile de la Cité, where there was a kind of market, a Christmas tree market. But all of the Christmas trees have a, a cross nailed to their base, which is extremely disconcerting for an American, especially a Jewish American, who wants a Christmas tree that you can put in a uh, stand, in a in a water stand. So it was the accumulation of all those tiny degrees of difference, which, you know, if I think about it, would have been true in London too. They do things differently everywhere. But in no place do they do things so significantly differently as in Paris and stubbornly insist that the, their way of doing it is the right and only way that it can be done. Precisely. You need a timbre for your timbre. Exactly. And if you don't like it, well, no one's making you be here. And things that seem very simple, ça n'existe pas en France. 
just doesn't exist in France. Things that you know must I, exist in yes. France don't exist in France. I love that phrase. And you can't take it for granted that a bank, for example, will want your money. No, exactly. No, no, that's that's quite right. We had to go courting a bank to see to find one finally that would that actually wanted our our deposits. On the other side of that, as countless people have written, but I was one of the, I don't know if I was one of the first, but certainly one of the most uh, intent, was um, the connections you begin to make, the relationships you begin to make with people, friends, and, and with uh, with potential friends, and with the people you buy oysters from are become much more uh, intimate than they ever do in New York, uh, where they are, they tend to be um, anonymous in lots of ways. So you were sort of constantly bound. I, I, I think, again, you know, I truly have not read this book or looked at this book in almost a quarter century, but we have. if I remember correctly, there's a section about buying our first turkey for Christmas dinner and what a complicated, intense, personal exchange that was with the turkey vendor. Uh, and here in New York, I'm ashamed to say, you know, I do it online. I I ordered two green circle turkeys from our friends at D'Artagnan Turkey, Turkey, and they arrive in a chilled box five days later. Maybe I suppose one could probably start doing that in Paris now too, but I, I, I prefer the old way. Uh, I'm not sure. It's nice that D'Artagnan has a hand in it though. That's... Yes. Yeah. It connects that. you. It's true. She's... The woman who runs it is French. The only place that I'm aware of that you can get a, a turkey is... Um, the Grande Épicerie, and uh, you have to order it in advance, and it's this whole bizarre line of questioning with someone that's never even imagined eating a turkey, and then they ask their superior who that. And you have to go there for cranberry sauce too, and actually probably even, well, I know you should make cranberry sauce from the cranberries, but I've definitely bought cran- cranberry sauce at the Grande Épicerie. But I was going to ask you whether it was worth it, but I think that that's a bit of a actually an obvious answer uh, if one reads Paris to the Moon. So instead, I think I'd, I'd like to know how your last 24 hours were. Like, what was it like? Do you remember how you felt leaving Paris and saying goodbye to the people? Of course I do. Now, our last 24 hours as it happened were a bit traumatic because uh, someone in the, had stolen my wife's uh, bag like three days before we left, one of the people packing up the house, as it turned out. So our passports and everything else got stolen, and then we had to go to the American embassy and deal with that. But that was sort of extra trauma. But the the deeper trauma, the meaningful one, you know, there's a beautiful jazz waltz. And I'm going to forget the name of the, by an Armenian, interestingly, French-Armenian jazz pianist named Tigris Hamayan. I'll send you the link uh, um, after we, we talk. It's a beautiful thing, and, and I think of it always. I listen to it when I'm thinking about leaving Paris. It's called, I should add, Leaving Paris, this beautiful jazz oh. waltz, which captures wow. some, for me, the emotions, the regret, nostalgia of, of leaving Paris. The hardest part was that our son's uh, nanny, babysitter, was an extraordinary woman named Nisha. They had grown, as as children and nannies do, incredibly close. And she found the idea of him leaving almost intolerable. So that was sort of so much an emotional core of it. The nice part of that story is, and it speaks well for both of them, is that they remain close to this day. So that when uh, he developed, and Luke, our son, who's the hero of Paris the Moon, developed the first really intense live-in relationship of his life with a, a girl in medical school called Zoe. 
uh, he took Zoe over to Paris to introduce her to Nisha because he wanted Nisha to know, you know, who he was living with. So, so they remain very close to this day, which isn't one of those things you would necessarily expect to happen, but it did. And then, of course, there was the overwhelming melancholy in those last 24 hours of, uh, it was strange, you know, we had in a certain sense, both professionally and emotionally, accomplished everything we'd set out to do. And one of the reasons I had decided to leave, which I now somewhat regret, it's one of those things, you know, we all in life have little moments where we play it back and say, could we have done it differently? Should we have done it differently? And there are moments when I think, you know, we never should have left Paris. We were extremely happy in Paris. And I had the extraordinary feeling, which every writer gets, if you're lucky, once in a lifetime, that I knew the stuff was good. I had really found my voice in Paris. And I knew, though, in those years, you know, we were, it was still the beginnings of the internet and so on. So we were still much, much more cut off from New York and America than we would be now, right? Whereas this was still the years of dial-up email. You know, there was no, uh, mm-hmm. that was as close as you got to to connecting. But I knew just from when I went back from the, when I went back to New York, I knew that, that what I was doing was good. I, I know that sounds conceited, but writers only get that feeling a few times. Most of the time a writer's life is spent feeling beleaguered, misunderstood, and kicked about by critics and the public and everyone else. But there's a moment in your life as a writer, if you're lucky, and if you're good, when everything sort of clicks and you know this is really working. And I knew that from the time I arrived in Paris. That And, and it was doubly emancipating for me because until then I'd been writing for The New Yorker for almost a decade, but I'd been the art critic of the magazine. And though I like my art criticism fine, it had been of a particular kind of... Uh, scholarly, highbrow, I hope emotional and, and impressionistic kind as well. But that had been my identity, not as a as a writer of um, first-person humorous essays, which was much more to my nature, much closer to my soul, was my soul. And yet, I also was conscious that it had gone so well, and I had assembled this book, Paris the Moon, out of a lot of those pieces, and then and then with a lot of new writing, it had gone so well because it was totally natural. In other words, everything that happens in that book were just things that happened. And I sometimes have a hard time explaining that to people because people will tell me to this day, oh, I went to Saint-Sulpice at midnight because you said you went there. Or I went to Desrolles because you said you went there. We had no plan in life at all. And certainly the last thing in the world I was trying to do was supply a blueprint for visiting Paris. We had a wonderful but sleepless child. And I was pushing his poussette through Paris. And that was as close to a... Uh, a battle plan as we ever got. And because it all was so natural, things that people enjoyed then, I hope still enjoy joining a gym or not being able to join a gym, the ball <laughs> fight for the balls are, and all of that had just happened. It had happened naturally. And I became worried, probably prematurely, that it would turn into shtick if I went on doing it. And, and it had the, the whole series of pieces and the book and the book had culminated with the birth of our daughter, Olivia, and that had supplied me with a, what I felt was a really beautiful and, and emotionally and dramatically appropriate ending because it underlit and exemplified the themes of the book, which is that life is simultaneously utterly universal and shared. We all have babies and the act of having a baby is the same whether you're in Zimbabwe or in uh, Neuilly. But at the same time, they're all articulated, parsed, given the grammar of very particular places and cultures. And that though that truth... That's the point of the book, is that those two things are true at once. Everything really is universal. Everything really is particular. So I worried, 
I would start doing shtick. In other words, I would do things in order to write a piece instead of writing pieces out of things that had actually happened and things that had that I had done. And so I was professionally felt ready to leave Paris, I guess is the answer, which was probably a mistake. I've gone on writing from Paris and about Paris for the past 20 years all the time. I've been sort of another book ready to to go. I'm not planning to publish it soon, but at some point I'll publish, you know, the last 25 years of Paris pieces. Okay, and I have a question. I have a personal interest in your answer to this because I'm really curious. How has it affected your kids having this early moment? I suppose your daughter was very young before you went back to New York. She was very little. when she She's a very uh, special and articulate uh, young woman. And when she was about three years old, she saw a copy of the book, you know, in a bookstore or something. She says, that's daddy's book. And I said, yes. She said, I know what's in that book. I said, well, what? And she said, Luke does things, I get born, which is ah. true. <laughs> very important role. Luke does do things and she does and she gets born. Luke, I think, had complicated feelings about it for a while because inevitably when, you know, we got back when he was six and six, seven, everyone would ask him, which do you like better, New York or Paris? And mm. there was a, a period when the um, book was unexpectedly successful when he had a kind of double identity as the boy in the book and yeah. the actual person. That's all subsided since. And he loves Paris, uh, I'm glad to say now. He let his French, which was very good when we left, lapse a bit as part of his adjusting to uh, American life. When you left, was his French perfect? Did you guys, well, I suppose the nanny spoke to him in French. Yeah, and the school, he was at school for two years. It, you know, his French was good, but he let it lapse. But in the recent years, he's been studying. You know, it's a wonderful thing you can do now. He's showed me this, which I should do as well. You know, you can do, do conversations online with French speaker, so he does that for a few hours every week, and his French is pretty good. He's a getting his PhD in philosophy now, <clears throat> so he needs written French as well to read Descartes and Derrida mm -hmm. and God knows who. So he, he's adjusted to it. Olivia uh, loves Paris too, and I have wonderful photographs of her there with her mother. We had a wonderful uh, family visit not that long ago; must have been 2018 before pre-pandemic as we did everything now had to be 2019 wow it was not that long ago we were celebrating the 100th anniversary of Ernest Hemingway's arrival in France uh, in Paris and the Hemingway Society of America rented the uh, the restaurant on top of the Eiffel Tower for the occasion and they asked me it's one of the the nicer accolades of life to come and give the keynote to celebrate Hemingway's 100th anniversary. So I brought Olivia and Martha with me, and we have wonderful pictures of us going up to the top of the uh, top of the tower, and I was very proud to have Olivia, who was born, obviously, in, in Paris, in the audience as I talked about uh, the of Paris. I've just read your amazing book, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism, which is addressed to Olivia. And one of the things that you bring up in this book is the binational nature of the Statue of Liberty, which I'd, I'd kind of forgotten until I was recently in the Jardin de Luxembourg and saw the other one. The small one, the smaller sister, right? The little sister. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what America and France have in common as ideas and where they diverge. Oh, wow. That's such a great question. And you're right. It's something I've, I've been writing about a lot in these last couple of years. In fact, they brought one of the models of the Statue of, of Liberty, the original Bartholdi model, to Ellis Island, I beg your pardon, to Liberty Island, just uh, last year, and I, I wrote something about it. 
it, one of the things I was trying to talk about in A Thousand Small Sanities, which is a letter to Olivia, Olivia on liberalism in the American sense, really what's called republicanism in France, liberalism in France, as you both know, it references, in French, references uh, free market economics. So Margaret Thatcher is called a liberal. What we call liberalism, that is a belief in simultaneously in liberty and in social reform, in social reform through liberty, is more commonly called republicanism. So that's a little uh, linguistic note. But That's an important distinction, actually, because people get really, really confused. Yeah, people in France get, yes, get, it's, it's a freaky thing. But in any case, Statue of Liberty had become over the decades, so much, uh, I use a word I hate, icon of American immigration that people thought of it that way. You know, we have a famous Emma Lazarus poem, bring me your poor, give me your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. And all of our grand, my grandparents came through Ellis Island and saw the Statue of Liberty. You know, it's a classic moment. I was just watching Godfather 2 the other night. And that is exactly what happens. The immigrants come and they see the in that case, the false promise of the Statue of Liberty and so on. Mm. But that's not what the Statue of Liberty was made to represent. It was an impulse among French Republicans in the 1860s at a time when France was still under the Second Empire and the somewhat dictatorial control of Louis Napoleon, Napoleon III. It was a gesture towards republicanism after America, the North, had won the Civil War and abolished slavery. This group of wild-eyed French dreamers thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we paid to build a great colossus in America, looking towards the old world, holding up the lamp of liberty, illuminating old Europe as we try to move towards our own Republican government. It was one of those crazy ideas that should never have worked, but it persisted for a lot of reasons. And that's what the Statue of Liberty is about. Most people don't see or don't know that at her foot, is a broken shackle, a broken slave shackle. She stands for the emancipation of the slaves. She stands wow. for the abolition of oppression. She's not about immigration. That all is a wonderful story, but it's a story that happens accidentally and or unintentionally and later on. And that idea of a shared ideal of liberty, rooted in the classical past, certainly, but also rooted in a Republican in the in the French sense now we have those words we have to juggle with all the time liberal and Republican mean yeah. such different things in our two in our two countries that it's very much part of it and uh, it's one of the beautiful uh, annealing and uh, hybridizing forces and of course this goes back to the beginning of the United States I wrote a long essay about Lafayette two months ago. And the fascinating thing is, is that Americans think of Lafayette as having just shown up to help us win a revolution and then he went home. But in fact, in France, after the revolution, Lafayette is this enormous figure, both in the French Revolution, right up to the revolution of 1830, which most Americans have never even heard of, when he's the leader of the Republican of the Republican forces. And Lafayette is everything the Statue of Liberty represents, which is a form of universalism. I, it's one of the, of the countless things I want to say to Monsieur Zimor. One is, is that France is famous for its uh, universalism, not for its parochialism. That's what the Statue of Liberty represents. That's what Lafayette mm -hmm. was all about. He believed in liberty for all. He believed in one planet, one world. He's a remarkable figure in that way. But that's what the Statue of Liberty is all about. It's about the dream of a common liberty for all peoples. It's not about as something as, in another sense, parochial as the American welcome to immigration. Well, you also write, Adam, about how cafes and other public forums are necessary for pluralism. Can you tell us a 
bit about French cafe culture as you've experienced it? Sure. You know, it's funny. It's it's funny you mention that. You know, it's a weird thing when I I, I keep saying this because it's sort of stunning to me. I have not looked at this book in so long, not out of distaste, but just because, you know, it's if you ever talk to a musician, they never listen to their old records because they the music was so dense in their veins that they just don't want to they don't want to hear it now. But I realize now that a lot of the things and the themes that I've been exploring recently come out of Paris the Moon. But in Paris the Moon, they were anecdotal, I hope charming narrative. And they've since become more, lack of a better word, my son winces when I say philosophical because he does real philosophy, more um, contemplative, if you like, more, a little more abstract. So one of the things that's a you know a big a, an event in Paris the Moon is the fight to save the Balzar the Brasserie Balzar, and it's it's a kind of a mock epic comedy, but over the recent years I've gotten fascinated by, by the way that semi public spaces like cafes exactly Monica like brasseries, uh, like restaurants are places in which social capital gets made. This is a very important theme in the uh, in uh, a lot of sociology in the past 30 years that that you know we build the capital that allows us to have liberal institutions meaning institutions of debate institutions of mutual tolerance institutions of uh, democratic elections and so on not top down from constitutions but bottom up from cafes we develop the social habits of coexisting with other people who are not of our clan or kind we engage in every sense simple and profound in conversation with others, and that that's the necessary living basis for a successful free society, an open society. And so I think that that's become a very important theme in my work. And, you know, it's something that sounds sort of almost trivial, right? Cafes and coffee houses are the foundation of free societies, but there's an enormous amount of evidence and common sense tells you this as well. I've been in engaged with a, a wonderful Iranian uh, dissident woman the, who began the uh, White Wednesdays, I, I'm 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 going to have to get that right. But in any case, the movement in which women take off the damned veil and show themselves as they are, and one of the great crucibles for this act of uh, women's emancipation in Iran were coffee houses. They where you could go and you didn't have to be under the thumb of the religious police. And of course, the religious police then go and try and close down one coffee house after another, exactly because they know that women are free there to uh, to converse, not to necessarily converse. Not to plot against the government, but to recognize each other as autonomous people, autonomous individuals. So yes, coffee houses, I think, play an enormous role, cafes, in doing that. And one of the things that, of course, concerns us as Francophiles, lovers of French civilization, is the the decline or the disappearance of the cafe from French life, because it plays that that vital role. I was glad to see we were in Paris in, in September, just beginning the post-pandemic period, I was glad to see that most of the cafes <coughs> I love most were alive and thriving. And I'll tell you what, in May, the day we were allowed to go back to the cafes, and I'd had a baby uh, two months earlier, but I was like, we're going. But I looked out my window, you know, it's sort of 11.45 to see if the lunch crowds were going to start piling in, and they were there. And I thought, I can't believe I'm going to have to hustle out the door, you know, get the baby's hat and the bottle and this and that. I'm going to have to rush to get a spot at my local cafe after all this time. But I did, and I ended up having to queue up, but someone saw I had a newborn and so let me get ahead of them in line, which was nice. Aucun Boeing sur mon transit 
bateau sous mon transat. Je cherche en vain la portée. Hemingway, a cafe regular who enjoyed, you know, writing with his rum, St. James, etc. In your 2017 essay for The New Yorker called Hemingway the Sensualist, you talk oh, I about... I love this question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about um, Garden of Eden, the posthumously published novel of his in which some of his kinkier predilections are explored. And I'm wondering, do you think living in Paris helped Hemingway liberate his saucy side? I thought you would ask me, if, do I have a hidden novel that will be published posthumously that will reveal all of my uh, my kinkier side, which is... Well, you did just say that you've got more writing from Paris coming out at some point. So. Yes, which have been masked is by my... Is Martha going to change her hairstyle? Nice nice dad side of things. I, my taste, what is the line Shakespeare, do not, do not that way run. You know, something funny is that, um, as I mentioned, we, we were back in Paris in September for a ceremony and for uh, a little time, I actually gave a couple of lectures on Hemingway for uh, an American audience at the Ritz. For the first time, we borrowed an apartment from friends, from New York friends, on the Rue Cardinal Lemoine over in the Fifth Arrondissement. And I know this is hard to believe. We went to the Pantheon for the first time. I had never, in 40 years in Paris, off and on, I had never been inside the Pantheon. And we visited Hemingway's apartment, which is all the way up the Rue Cardinal Le Mans. I had not known that. Uh, you can't, I mean, we stood outside and, and took a picture. I think that, yes, I don't think there's any question that one of the things that Paris did for Hemingway, who came from a very straightened middle-class mid Midwestern family, was to open him up to... Uh, to sex and love, you know, one of the funny things in Hemingway, who was like every writer prone to self-mythologizing, it's why we become writers, to propagate our own myths, you know, that the uh, the heroine of uh, A Farewell to Arms, which is still my favorite of all Hemingway novels, Catherine, uh, is based on a real woman, Agnes von Kurlowski, I'm going to get her name mashed up about that, who had a flirtation with Hemingway and then wrote him a Dear John, or I guess I should say Dear Ernest letter, getting rid of him. And he invented this whole operatic thing about having their having sex and her, her dying in childbirth with his child, which was pure fantasy, pure revenge, what we would now call, you know, revenge porn that he had <laughs> created in order to to get even with her for for rejecting him. And uh, this is what that's why we're writers in exactly in order to take revenge on reality. And he did it in that way. But yes, I think that there's no question that the texture of French life, you know, look, there's a moment, I don't know if you remember, it's just coming to me, in Sun Also Rises, there's a moment when they're down in uh, Montparnasse, I guess, they're very, uh, uh, he's scathing about the pédés, the gay men in a bar. It's, you know, it's very, uh, you know, from our point of view, very bigoted about homosexual life, which was as we know, freer or more accepted. You know, it's a complicated thing about the way France toleration works in France, typically. It isn't that it's freer by announcement, but it's freer by practice. So that Gertrude Stein and Alice Toklas and so on could live their lives, not in our sense, openly and proudly as gay women, but without the fear of interference or oppression. And I think that's very much the, um, you know, very much always been the model. So that notion of freedom for experiment was, I think, without question, available to Hemingway in in Paris with Hadley and Pauline and all of it in a way it wouldn't have been, certainly wouldn't have been in Michigan, probably wouldn't have been in New York or in Toronto, where let's not forget. Especially Toronto back in the day, which um, 
Yes. Oh, my God. Dad loves to remind me that when he Toronto yeah, first good. arrived <laughs> in, like, what, I suppose the 70s or, or even early 80s, that there was, like, nowhere to go out for dinner. One of my favorite Canadian books is by my friend Bruce McCall, who collabor- we collaborated on a book together. And it's uh, Thin Ice, it's called. And it's description of Toronto in the 1940s, in the late 1940s. Well, it will make you laugh because of the the unimaginable pall of depression that hung over the entire city, but no longer is true. Yes, in case anyone's listening and, and contemplating a trip to Toronto, 2021 Toronto is a whole other story, let me tell you. I love Toronto. I love Toronto is a great cosmopolitan city now. Whenever I have a chance, I got to go there. One of the other, the two lectures, there's, there are three lectures I'm proud of. I've spent so much of my life as a as a lecturer. That's a horrible word, a lecturer, as a speaker, I guess. And the three things I'm proudest of is I got asked to do the 50th anniversary Massey lectures throughout Canada, and then the uh, the Hemingway uh, Centennial in Paris, and then the um, Six Degrees of Separation, the Canadian Citizenship Lecture, which I gave just in 2019, about exactly what we're talking about, about the nature of liberal institutions. So I love Toronto. Some of my favorite people are in Toronto. Some of my favorite restaurants are in Toronto. Oh, we do too. It's, I, it has just changed a great deal as far as I can gather in the past enormously. 30 years. But let's go back to Paris for a second. So the new Wes Anderson film, The French Dispatch, was, of course, inspired by The New Yorker. If The New Yorker were headquartered in a fictional French city called Ennui, on the banks of the River Blasey. In our fantasies, the New Yorker staff you know, got together to watch the film and then had a drink at whatever your New Yorker equivalent is of the cafe and the film de son blague to talk about it. Please tell us this really happened, or at least how the film went over at the New Yorker. <laughs> I have a horrible admission. I have a horrible admission. I have not seen the film. No! And I haven't seen it. I'm a That's okay. somewhat perverse human being. I know Wes a bit. In fact, there was a moment 20 some oh. years ago when Wes was interested in in adapting Paris to the Moon oh, wow. as a movie. No, obviously it never happened. I, I haven't seen it. Two things are true. One is I haven't seen the film, partly because I, as I say, I operate on a perverse principle of avoiding the things that I absolutely ought to see. So <laughs> I was the last person on earth to see either The Sopranos or Game of Thrones Exactly, because everyone's saying, you got to watch The Sopranos. It's annoying you watch when everyone's saying, you've got to watch this. You, yes, of all exactly. people, are going to love it. And you're like, well, will I do you know me that well? Is it that your <sighs> expectations are high and are you afraid to be disappointed? No, I just don't want to be part of the crowd. I wish I was that distinguished. No, it's much, it's much, uh, it's much less interesting than that. I just don't want to be part of the, uh, of the crowd. And so everybody who's been saying to me, you got to see The French Dispatch. It's all about The New Yorker. It's Wes Anderson. It's France. It's perfect for you. And I just haven't seen it. I will. The other thing I'm, I'm bound to say is that I haven't seen anyone from The New Yorker either in two years because <laughs> we shut down the office when the pandemic began, uh, have not been back since. Now, I write from here. This is, you can see, this insanely uh, book-littered room in any case, but I used to have an office there. I had had one for 35 years. So we, we haven't had any connection except by Zoom and by telephone. We've been publishing the magazine that way for two years. I, I must have a conversation about it with my editor, Henry Finder, who is, among many other things, a, a great movie character, and Richard Brody, my friend, uh, who writes about it. But I will go see it and I'll report back. I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler. It's more of a something that will entice you 
just a detail, there's a packet of cigarettes on the cafe table at one point, And instead of Gaulois, they're called Gaulistes cigarettes. <laughs> and it's funny. just dense with jokes like that. And I think you'll understand 10 times more of them even than I did. So I, I will add, you know, inevitably, this is the case wherever you work, right? I always am bewildered by the kind of the um, mystique that of The New Yorker, which I gather this movie, Wes's movie, reflects, because I've been there now for 36 years, and mystique is the last thing I would I would associate with. I've been there for four editors, 36 years, and I'm a citizen of that institution, and I hope I will spend, you know, I, I have spent my entire adult life working for it, and it's a remarkable institution with many great things, but it isn't a particularly... A glamorous or even particularly interesting place in, in terms of its I, I it may have once been it's a collection of of writers and editors and more tedious group than writers and editors it's hard to assemble in in america anyway in france they uh, <laughs> they have a better time but i think but it, but in, in all seriousness i think that's true you know i had the same kind of fascination with le monde when i was in paris because it's such an institution and i got to be close to in fact one of the single greatest day of not greatest but the most astonishing day of my life in Paris was one day I was taking my walk I always would write from uh, as I do to this day from uh, 10 to 4 and then go out for a walk usually I would take Luke to the Luxembourg Gardens but this day was a, a rainy day and I walked out I walked to, towards the 5th from the 6th to the 5th and stopped in a little cafe and I had my copy of Le Mans which I read every day at 4 o'clock and I opened it up and there was a piece by Sylvie Kaufman about an American writer, a spirituel American writer, meaning witty in the French sense. And it was me. It was about my writing about Paris. I had no idea this was ever going to appear. And it was it was weird and startling to know that you, because I had no idea that anyone in France was paying attention. I should have saved that. You know, I don't think I did. Anyway, I thought Le Monde was a similarly glamorous institution, but of course, it's just another newspaper. Well, I mean, I won't even get into what people think about Vogue and the reality. <laughs> That's one of the starkest <laughs> chakras. But actually, and I apologize in advance. You haven't seen the French Dispatch, but I must know. Have you heard of a little show called Emily in Paris? You know, I have. I saw about 90 seconds of it, and I found it repellent. I'm I'm sorry if if, if that's an obnoxious uh, no. opinion, but I found it repellent, and no. I didn't and I didn't want to watch any more of it. I uh, you know I probably unduly, but because, you know, as I read in that section, I have so many predecessors, but I take a certain responsibility sort of for the renewal of the romance of Paris, because I think Paris the Moon uh, had a magnetic effect on some people and on particular view of Paris. But Paris the Moon is a comedy. It's a romantic comedy, I, I hope. And it's about the making of a family, the discovery of a voice, the growing up of a child and many, many, and the birth of another and many as I say, beautiful and universal things. But it, I hope, though it has a hugely uh, enchanted and affectionate view of Paris, it isn't a shallow view, I would insist. You know, people don't remember that that the centerpiece, literally the very center of the book, I mean, it comes right, and I did it quite deliberately, midway through the book, is about the trial of Maurice Papon in Bordeaux, then I went down to Bordeaux to watch, which was about the trial of a French functionary, the highest French functionary eventually, for having uh, allowed children in Bordeaux to be uh, conveyed to Auschwitz. So I wanted that chapter to be like a black hole in the center of the book, and uh, in which all the beautiful light of Paris, of French civilization, rushed. So I'm 
never less than infatuated by, enchanted by, enamored by the beauty of French civilization, but I try not to be naive in my understanding of its darker side, and I dislike things that, that have that quality. This might be a bit tiré par les cheveux, so pulled by the hair, but we'll try. There's lust for Paris, and then there's love. Leaving Paris was painful for you because you were leaving something that you really and truly loved, whereas the kind of see, take a picture, conquer, get a, an Eiffel Tower trinket, leave, you know, that version of Paris is more of a lust-based version that's, that's shallower. Well, I began with a lust-based version. I had seduced, seduced is too strong a word. I had enticed a beautiful 18-year-old girl to come here to Paris with me. But then we built a family over the next 40 years. So it was it was a very different uh, different thing. Yeah, you know, I did a piece. I, nobody, I don't think many people read. It was in The New Yorker about the, uh, the love locks on the Pont des Arts a few years ago. Because I thought that was, to use your word, Emma, that was a lust for Paris piece. They called them love locks. It was not really engaging with Paris, and I felt that it was um, defacing Paris rather than uh, uh, illuminating Paris. And I, I, I feel that way strongly about those those kinds of things. I mean, look, it's not as though Paris is uh, you have to the only place you can things you should write about Paris about the banlieue and exclusion and insecurity and all of those things. But you need a composite view of French life to understand it. Well, I'm wondering about food because you write so beautifully about food and The Table Comes First is a book of yours that contains a collection of essays around kind of the relationship between France and America and taste buds cooking. How You mentioned that you do all the cooking in your household. How did living in Paris change your relationship with food and cooking? Oh, great question. Totally transformed it. Partly because I really began cooking, I, I wouldn't say seriously, but I began cooking daily in Paris, because we had a small boy to feed. And, you know, it, Paris restaurants aren't well, or at least in those days, weren't particularly well affixed for small children. And I love to do it. So I would go to the market every day. It's a habit I haven't lost, though the market now is the Whole Foods, three blocks away on Third Avenue now. But I got the habit of going every day to the market in those days, uh, either on the Rue de Bussy or the Rue de Bac. And then on Sundays, I'd go to the Marché Biologique on the Boulevard Ruspai. Has that reopened is that still going no, it's still there it's still there. yeah it's a wonderful market and yeah i take my son in his poussette and we would hang all the bags on the back of the uh, of the poussette and then he would get up suddenly and the whole thing would topple over <laughs> of course so i know that sounds very reductive but the truth is it was beginning to appreciate the specificities the non-supermarket bound specificities of um a poulet de bresse or wild salmon or moule de bouchot, all of those things, you know, the, the degree to which in, in France, there is no chicken, there is no beef, there is no lamb, there's beef from the limousine, there's ducks from the Southwest, there's... Yes, all of known parents, des parents yes, connus. Exactly, <laughs> there's uh, agneau du lait from the Pyrenees, you know. So beginning to appreciate those particularities was a big... It changed my understanding of cooking, and I'm sure in a terribly snobbish way, but it changed my palate in all those ways. The dailiness of French gastronomy was was a huge thing, which, as I say, persists to this day. I shop every day for, for what we're going to have tonight. 
and the particularities of it. And then there were times, and I wrote a, a what was at the time a very controversial essay called The um, Crisis in French Cooking about my sense, which was very true at that time, that French cooking wasn't renewing itself. It was sustaining itself. We were having more of the same wonderful things. But that element of uh, novelty, renewal, was was lacking. I think that's less true now. At least it was on the basis of the last few meals I had in Paris in September than it was then. But at the same time now, I'm on the opposite end of the spiral. Mm-hmm. I don't want French cuisine to change as much as it did. And I feel sad when I see little, you know, traditional bistros that we love, like Au Charpentier or the Petit Saint-Benoît have vanished in the last few years. So it's harder to get that kind of uh, bourgeois cuisine than it was even when we were there. Okay, so Emma got her food question. Now I would like to talk about fashion, if you don't mind, for two seconds. Can we um, just acknowledge the brilliance, first of all, of your essay, Couture Shock? But I would also like to ask you, do you think that couture holds any relevance or importance in modern French culture? Or are you of the feeling that it should go the way of Marie Antoinette? Well, there's a real analogy, I think, between the great three-star restaurants and Mm. um, haute couture. Uh, They're clearly, you know, dying swans in lots of ways. We were in Paris. I mentioned before that our favorite fancy place in Paris was always the Grand Vaufour. And we went back there for an, an occasion, a, a ceremony. And the uh, they've totally changed the menu. They've brought it all down market now in a, in a charming way. It's not haute cuisine anymore. It's very much uh, bourgeois cuisine because I'm sure they've I spoke to They made it into the, ready-to-wear. Yes, exactly. And I spoke to the, the, the chef, Guy Martin, a wonderful chef. And he basically said, there's no other way to survive. We can't survive as a three-star place. So at the same time, those places obviously radiate out their ideas and their their approach to the world at large. You know, Pierre Gagnier, or uh, we dined at on somebody else's tab. I should add it, Lamboisie in the in the Place de Vosges, and it was wonderful to have you know uh, lobster with um, tarragon and and balsam. I don't know, it was a veal stock. You know, it was beautiful meat and and crustacean marriage. And I feel the same way about haute couture. Obviously, it doesn't it doesn't justify itself as it did. I mentioned uh, Richard Avedon, who was a huge, probably the single biggest influence on my life as a man and as an artist, and actually did the photograph for Paris to the Moon. And what he always would tell the stories about coming back as a young man to Paris after the war to see the couture collections. And that was the event, right? The rich women, the Babe Paleys of the world, bought their clothes from there. And the women who couldn't afford to buy their clothes from there bought knockoffs of the clothes that Babe Paley was buying from Dior at that time. That obviously is no longer the the model, no longer the way it works. But I have the sense that just as the three-star restaurants survive to help as kind of uh, uh, suns around which exoplanets can can orbit, I think that the same is true. That was basically what I was trying to say in that piece. And I don't think it's changed all that dramatically since. But it's certainly the case that that the living relationship, as I say, Dick Avedon would tell wonderful stories about being on the ship, the liner, going from New York to Paris for the first time since the end of the war. And everybody was on it, all the buyers from Bergdorf's, all the buyers from Bloomingdale's. He, a 20-year-old, 21-year-old aspiring fashion photographer, rich ladies, you know, it was a different world in that sense. And uh, now, as I say, it's... um, it's more select, but perhaps not without influence. So yesterday you gave a lecture about Molière, and you've written the introduction to 
a new edition. Yeah, um, it's uh, for Library of America. Unfortunately, I don't have it yet because there's a, there's a supply chain problem in books and everything else. So I don't actually have the book itself with me. Richard Wilbur, the great American poet, did um, a series of inspired translations of Moliere. I, I hold up The Misanthrope and Tartuffe here. And I thought they were such great translations that I um, lobbied the Library of America, where I sit on the board, so I'm in good lobbying position, to publish them as, in the Library of America as high point in American literature, and they agreed to do it. So this is a series of lectures about Moliere and about Wilbur's translations of Moliere uh, and about Stephen Sondheim, who was a friend of Wilbur's too, and I wanted to pay tribute to him, and I'll do that next week. So yeah, I'm talking about Moliere. So Monica and I, full disclosure, when we were 12 years old, performed in Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme. She was the master of dance. I was the master of philosophy. We go way back with Jean-Baptiste Poquelin, but Le Bourgeois Gentilhomme is a parody of bourgeois society and a send-up of... And you mention in Insanities how the word bourgeois has been basically a diss since inception. And even like this idea of the exoplanets that surround... You know, how can we resurrect the... Like, is, can there ever be a, a positive spin on the bourgeoisie? Well, my whole body of work is a positive spin on the bourgeoisie, as my as my critics will point out. Without they will say it's an unduly positive spin on the bourgeoisie and their and their recreations and their indifference to suffering and their obsession with the amenities of life and so on. Uh, and I say that unapologetically that that's probably largely true. What I was actually talking about, exactly what I was talking about yesterday was the way that. Moliere's whole uh, body of work pivots on this moment in history, in French history, but in world history, when uh, European history at least, when aristocrats and the absolutist monarchy of Louis XIV is still very much entirely in power, and yet at the same time the new world of bourgeois manners and preoccupations is emerging. And a lot of Moliere's comedy comes out of the collision, of the, as in the bourgeois gentilhomme, right? Because he's a wealthy bourgeois who wants to learn to be, act like an aristocrat. And, you know, the phrase of the professor of philosophy is the one who says, um, opium allows you to sleep because it has dormitive powers, right? And the, he discovers he's been talking, speaking prose his whole life without knowing it and so on. So the whole comedy of that comes <laughs> out of the collision of bourgeois uh, materialism and prosperity and ambition for ascension and the deep rut of gentlemanly, of courtly, of courtly manners. Up in the greatest place, uh, Misanthrope and uh, Tartuffe, it's very much about how bourgeois societies, now the Misanthrope is set in a slightly more aristocratic world than uh, Tartuffe is, but it's about how middle-class societies, middle-class families are totally vulnerable to monomania, uh, to someone who comes to them and says, you ought to always tell the truth, always be honest. Or uh, like Tartuffe, um, you've got everything in this family, you're prosperous, but you have no piety. We can bring you piety. And the bourgeois, who are totally vulnerable to that kind of infection, to use the uh, the metaphor of the moment, say, oh yeah, yeah, let's, let's all reform or let's all do better. There's no society like a bourgeois society for being overwhelmed by fads and manias as we've, as we've seen. And Moliere made so much of his comedy out of, out of that as well. At the same time, particular bourgeois virtues, balance, temperance, are there as well. Moliere has one thing in the world that he hates and despises, and that's fanaticism. Fanaticism of every kind. He hates religious fanaticism. He hates political fanaticism. He hates ambitiously the fanaticism of the bourgeois gentleman, right? Who 
it's good to get cultivated. It's good to learn, but you shouldn't throw yourself over. Even the fanaticism of the learned ladies in that funny play. It's nothing, he doesn't think for a moment that there's something wrong with women being learned. He just thinks it shouldn't become a single-minded, monomaniacal fanaticism Mm -hmm. in your life. And that's what he always is opposed to. And in that way, he's one of the great voices of reason and common sense that we have. And I think of reason, I think he thought of reason and common sense as being very much uh, bourgeois virtues. So I think that in that sense, I think that there's a very positive spin on bourgeois manners that we can derive from Moliere. Mm, yes, that this kind of bent toward continuous improvement is actually will be a positive contribution. Ultimately, though, though comic in its first apparitions, positive in, in its ultimate effects. And, uh, you know, he basically believes that if you could put together bourgeois earnestness and sincerity with uh, aristocratic poise, You'd have the perfect society. And we we never get there. The other thing I was taught lecturing about too was Moliere's life. Not many people know that Moliere, you know, had this passionate affair with Madeleine Béjart, the actress, and then married her daughter. What? I didn't know that. I did not know that. You didn't seem almost no one knows this. He married her daughter Armand. It's rather prescient of and parallel to a scandal involving another comic genius uh, of our <clears> time. <throat> but that's true. And people People accused him. They said not only had he married Madeline's daughter, but it was actually his own daughter that that he had fathered Armand, which wasn't true. But he was caught up in a major Me Too scandal in his time, which almost ended his career. It astonishes me how few people know that, but it's just so. Okay, this last question is slightly more, well, just wondering. So you're Philadelphia born, Montreal raised, New Yorker, a French chevalier of letters with a Paris-born daughter living in New York, you know, like where or what is home for you? How do you define that concept? It's a great question, a good place to end, I think. I deeply believe, and now you'll forgive me if I'm a bit preachy and and, um, political, to end. I deeply believe in the hybrid nature of human civilization. We are, have many identities that we exist in at once. I have a very powerful identity as a Montrealer, indeed as a Canadian. I live and die with the Montreal Canadians. I would rather eat a smoked meat sandwich than a pastrami sandwich. And if I have a an image of happiness in my life, it's December in Montreal when the first snows are beginning to fall on the old city. I love Paris with all my heart and soul. I discovered my vocation in Paris. I raised my children, had them in Paris. I I leave Paris with a wrench in my heart. I am a New Yorker. I have lived through 9-11 and the pandemic. And, you you know, when all of our friends were fleeing to the Hamptons and their hideaways, I would not move. And and I'm proud that I didn't. They should issue us T-shirts that say, you know, I have my Lijon T-shirts that say, I never left New York. I love Philadelphia, too, for that matter, where I was a, a kid. Those are easy ones that are part of my composite identity. But all of our identities are composite. If you'll forgive me a political moment now, I couldn't help but see the Eric Zemmour's bizarre video with which he declared his candidacy for the presidency of France. And he dug out all of these people who represented the old France that's vanishing and disappearing. They included Barbara, one of my favorite singers, the great Chanteuse, who comes from an Alsatian-Ukrainian Jewish family and was in hiding throughout the war as a Jew from the Patan regime. That included Charles Aznavour, who's an Armenian, who was given an Armenian name by his parents. 
The point I'm making, obviously, is that the glories of French civilization are not don't come from some purified essence of Frenchness. They come from the composite hybrid civilization of France, which has welcomed in so many alien and immigrant veins and strains. That's where our lives reside. It reside they reside in the multiplicity, in the plurality of identities that we have. So home for me is this apartment in New York and this block where I raise my children and walk my dog. Home for me is the Luxembourg Gardens in Paris, uh, where I went every day for six years to watch my son grow up. Home for me is uh, Montreal and Canada. We have the capacity for a limitless number of homes in our hearts. That's what, to come back to this book, the A Thousand Small Sides, that's what liberal pluralism is all about. And to make one last point, the greatest and most significant distinction I think we need to make in our political, our social life now, is between nationalism and patriotism. Nationalism is the conviction that our nation is the victim of a vindictive plot in the world and its superiority is being assaulted and denied. I don't have to enumerate the nationalists who afflict us now. Patriotism is love of a place. It's an absolute love of a particular place and a particular people in a particular moment. And it's an affirmative, it's a positive emotion. And we can live with a plural patriotisms in our hearts without succumbing to nationalism in our souls. Toi qui n'as peut-être pas compris quand je t'ai dit en quittant Paris, je Mauvais le que je sais bien quand je Well, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to this episode and joining us for a great chat with Adam Gopnik, who we're so pleased to have had. And I just want to remind you that if you like us, show us your love, rate and review us on iTunes. And you can also email us at fanfarefanmail at gmail.com. <gasps> Monica, guess what? What? We have a psychic correspondent. <gasps> what? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Her name is Candace. She wrote in after listening to episode one saying very nice things that I won't repeat, but also that she thought that Sally Rooney was the millennial Nora Ephron and that we should talk about Sally Rooney, which those of you who have listened to episode two will know we absolutely do. So thank you, Candace. Let's call her Crystal Ball Candace. Thank you so much for writing in and for listening. And we hope you enjoy our Sally Rooney episode. And we would love to hear from more of you. Thank you. And thank you so much to our producers, Matt Bentley-Viney and Joel Grove. 